Amen. And so, Lord God, we thank you that your love never fails, that you don't change, that you, in fact, are love. And sometimes, Father, you know that we think you hate us. We think you've forgotten about us. And yet, Lord, you have revealed in Jesus Christ the Lord that your love never changes, that you are always love, even when we do our absolute worst to you, nailing you to our tree of knowledge. You suffer and die and transform it into the tree of life, giving us your body and your blood to drink because you are love and you don't change and love never fails. Help us to preach now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him that they had, all they had done and taught. He had sent them out to preach and to teach, cast out demons. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus is a rock star. He tries to get away from the crowd on a boat with his small group, and they follow him along the shore and intercept him. The crowd, the aklos, is a large gathering of people that are poorly connected. In Scripture, the crowd is extremely fickle, chanting Hosanna one moment and crucify, crucify the next moment. A person can feel incredibly lonely in a crowd. Well, the crowd's looking for Jesus. And I suppose that we're all looking for Jesus, and we assume he's a rock star. So we look for Jesus in, in people like Billy Graham and Joel Olstein, people that fill up football stadiums. And I'm convinced that Jesus is in Billy Graham and Joel Olstein. So I'm not saying anything at all critical about that. I'm just saying that we assume Jesus is a rock star. But it's impossible to know a rock star. It's impossible to know a rock star because a rock star is an idol of our own creation. You can't know an idol because an idol is not real. Well, to the crowd, Jesus was a rock star. And the crowd was looking for Jesus. I've spent a lot of time looking for Jesus. When I was younger, I figured that I'd find him in guys like Tim Brewer. Tim Brewer was the older, cool guy that would come and speak at our at our youth group. Then I looked for him in Don Muma, senior pastor at Bel Air Presbyterian Church, pastor to President Ronald Reagan, all-American football star, and my boss. I was a high school youth director, and Don Muma was a rock star. Then I thought I found him in Ron Lee Davis, senior pastor, author, speaker around the country, my boss in Northern California. Ron was a rock star. Tony Campolo, Chuck Swindoll, Brennan Manning, Philip Yancey, they were my spiritual superstars, my rock stars, and I learned a ton of great stuff about Jesus from each one of them. It's kind of unusual, but I've gotten to meet and know each one of my rock stars. And yet that's different from knowing Jesus. Well, the crowd's looking for Jesus, 
and they've turned him into a, a rock star. Verse 34, as he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them. Isn't that interesting? Uh, compassion for them, for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that we may go into the surrounding country and villages, or so they may go into the surrounding country and village and buy something for themselves to eat. They know about Jesus, but they're still hungry. They're hungry. They're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, a shepherd's job is to feed the sheep, to feed hungry sheep. Prophets like Ezekiel prophesied this coming shepherd, one shepherd, the Messiah. And Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would serve this great banquet on a mountain for all peoples and swallow up death forever. So expectations are high. And the crowd sits on this mountain at the edge of the sea, desperately hungry and looking at Jesus. And his disciples say, send them away, Jesus, so that they may go into their surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But Jesus answered them saying, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, are, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They said to him, oh, sure, Jesus, we'll just whip out $40,000 worth of bread and give it to the crowd. They said, oh, sure, Jesus, uh, right, we can do that. Um, you're insane. Are you insane, Jesus? I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in my office trying to write a sermon and saying to Jesus, Jesus, this is just insane. How can I feed your sheep? Not only tell them about you, but feed them with you. Because you know, sheep don't apply food to their lives. That's the way we act. Oh, you're gonna, I'm gonna apply this. Sheep don't apply food to their lives. They eat food and it becomes their lives. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're supposed to eat the, the word of God. Well, the disciples are wondering, how do you expect us to feed all these sheep? I know that my spiritual superstars struggled with that question. Several years ago, Tim Brewer um, went down to the garage and asphyxiated himself, leaving behind a young family, a confused and growing church, and, and a note in which he wrote this, it is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. Forgive me for being such an unfaithful shepherd. Don Muma and, and Ron Davis are, are great guys from whom I have learned a great deal about Jesus, but both were caught in multiple affairs in a world of lies. When I, when I was on their staff, each, each one of them, Ron told me, Peter, the pressure was so great, I, I just started carving out a little bit of time from myself, and it, and it grew and it grew. The pressure was so great. What pressure is he talking about? The pressure to feed the sheep. And then the pressure of being known and yet totally unknown. The pressure of being a rock star. Brennan Manning died recently. I learned so much from Brennan Manning about the love of God, but Brennan Manning struggled with just some raging addictions. And I suspect it haunted him. How do I feed all these sheep? 
Tony Campola, Philip Yancey, both taught me incredible things about Jesus, but both of those guys are just guys. Tony Campola is kind of a grumpy old Italian. And when I'd go skiing with Philip, I'd expect to receive all these great pearls of wisdom, you know, and he'd just want to talk about lunch. <laughs> Sometimes I think that people go out to lunch with me because they're impressed with a sermon or something and they're disappointed in me because they want something from me and I can't give that to them, at least not all of them. And so I despair thinking, God, how can I give all of them something to eat? I love this cartoon. Can you see this? In the middle, I don't know if you can see it, there's the pastor up there at the pulpit preaching. The bubble above his head says, blah, 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 blah. And there's the crowd all, all around him. And, and do you see the thought bubbles? Dear God, I'm lonely. Oh God, can't you see how lonely I am? Oh my God, I'm so lonely, I'm lonely. Jesus looks at the crowd, then looks at his disciples and says, you guys, give them something to eat. Well, how are the disciples supposed to feed that crowd? And how are you supposed to feed the people that God has put in your life? Verse 37, the disciples say, are we to go and buy 200 denarii a day's wage, 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, we got five and two fish. Four years ago, we preached on this story as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, and I made a couple points. Number one, all we have is enough. We already have enough for the banquet. So give all you have, and Jesus makes the banquet. Number two, when you have nothing, give the nothing. And with that, Jesus makes the great banquet. John points out that the loaves come from this little boy they find in the crowd and that they're barley loaves. Barley loaves, everyone knew in that day, that was, that was the poor, the, the food of abject poverty. That was the food that the poor ate. Five barley loaves and two, two fish would have been, the fish would have been about the size of sardines. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He maketh me lie down in green grass. Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22. That's what we do at 22, 23. Psalm 22, you know, is about the crucifixion of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It describes the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. John's pointing out that this was uh, the time of the Passover. The grass is green. It's the Passover. Um, this, is, this is our Passover. Verse 39, then Jesus ordered the disciples to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Literally, this is how it would read if you translate it literally from the Greek. He ordered them to recline all groups by groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. 
5,000 is, is penta kiskilioi in Greek. Five is penta. Fifty is pentakonta. Fiftieth is pentakoste. And Pentecost, you know, is the 50th day after Passover. It's the Sabbath of the Sabbath. Seven times seven, 49, and in Jewish reasoning, that's the 50th day. It's the Sabbath of the Sabbath when all is at rest, for all are satisfied. You see, Jesus is showing them how Passover turns into Pentecost. So how does a slaughtered lamb turn into a party where everyone is so intoxicated with the Spirit of God that the people that see it say, those guys are drunk? How will the great banquet be served? How will the great shepherd feed all his sheep? How will the apostles give them all something to eat? Well, number one, they give what they have. Number two, Jesus says stuff and does stuff to their stuff. Number three, the disciples give that stuff to groups. For Jesus had told them to form groups. The, the answer somehow is groups. Groups! Isn't that thrilling? Form groups. Groups is the answer. What do you think of when you think of joining a group? Okay, give in to the beauty of your feelings and say the words. Come on. I love you, Dad. I love you too, son. Okay, group, we have some newcomers here today with us. Say hello to Scott and his father, Mr. Evil? Evil, actually. Dr. Evil. Hello, Hello Dr. Dr. Evil. Evil. Hello, Hello Scott. Scott. Hello, everybody. So, Scott, why don't we start with you? What brings you here with us today? Well, I just really met my dad for the first time five days ago. I was partially frozen his whole life. That is beautiful that you can admit to that. He comes back, and, and now he wants me to take over the family business. But, Scott, who's going to take over the world when I die? Listen to the words he used. Who's going to take over the world when I die? Feels like that to some of us sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> We've heard from you, Scott. Now, uh, you, tell us a little about yourself. The details of my life are quite inconsequential. Oh, no, please, please. Let, let's hear about your childhood. Very well. Where do I begin? My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize, he would drink, he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy, the sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. You know, we have to stop. 
They form groups on the hillside, and how do you suppose they form those groups? I mean, do you suppose they formed them around some particular problem or issue, like a, a therapy, a group therapy session where everybody has issues, daddy issues, or something like that? Or, or maybe do you think that they formed affinity groups? Like uh, they said, okay, all the fishermen over here, all the tax collectors over here, prostitutes, you're right there in, in wherever. Do you think they did it uh, uh, according to affinity? Or maybe spiritual rank, you know, how advanced they were in their spirituality. Like when I used to go on the campus life cruise, they gave me, you know, notebooks according to how spiritual you were, and we stole the other notebooks so we'd be in a better group. Anyway, maybe they do that, or maybe they have tryouts. You think they had tryouts. Maybe it's like junior high where you, where you pick teams. My guess is, though, my guess is that they just sat down next to whoever they happened to be standing by. Old, young, fat, skinny, didn't matter, didn't matter. Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, Pharisees, didn't matter. You know, some of them must have been pagan Greeks or pagan Romans. Some were Samaritans. Undoubtedly, there are a whole lot of Jews, and none of them were Christians. Not yet. Just sat down next to the person next to them, formed groups. It didn't matter. And that's truly remarkable for who you ate with in that society was literally everything. You remember the cafeteria at junior high? How stressful that was? This was worse than that. This was worse than that. To dine with someone was to accept that someone into the sanctuary of communion with yourself. I mean, when you dined with someone in that society, it was literally forming a covenant, like a new covenant. That's why the Pharisees got so bent out of shape that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. It was because their sin became his sin, because they like dined together. And well, you can bet that in this crowd on the hillside, there were a few sinners. Jesus said, make them sit down in groups. And they sat down in groups of Pentecanta, 50 and, and 100. You, you may remember that uh, in the wilderness, Moses had the Israelites divide into groups of 50 and 100. It was how the nation was to be judged, literally judged, that's what they were doing, and after they were judged, then joined together. In, I was reading, I was actually reading this on the toilet the other day, it just surprised me. But in Exodus, when uh, God describes the tabernacle to Moses, the church, that is the sanctuary, that is the, te the tent of, of meeting and how they're to build it, uh, the tent of meeting was to literally be held together by 50 clasps on the edge of each piece of fabric. He keeps talking about these clasps. The, the tabernacle is literally held together by groups of, of 50. The apostles formed groups of 50, and Jesus had a group of 12, and within that group, he had a group of three. You see, I think my job and the leadership's job is to take what we have, give it to Jesus in order to serve up the Word of God and then distribute that Word in groups. Groups. And yet I think we naturally prefer crowds. Because, you know, you can get lost in a crowd, but you will be found in a group. I think we prefer crowds. So when the apostles say to us, the crowd, who have come to listen to Jesus Christ, superstar, when the apostles say to us, the church, y'all need to get in groups, something inside of us says, oh man, ah, I don't want to get in groups. Why is that? Why don't we like groups?
Now, it's, we're, we're, we can be honest with each other, right? We're family, so I'm asking a question, and you can just shout out an answer. You've been to groups. Why don't you like groups? <laughs> Can't hide. Can't hide, yep. And, and why do you want to hide? Because... Okay, yeah, it's a commitment, yeah. And commitments can hurt, right? I mean, okay, other things? Betrayal? You can be betrayed in a group, right? The other people are weird. The other people are weird. Oh, that is so, that is so true. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? What? You can get crucified. Yep. Lori? feel awkward, you feel strange, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't like sharing. Don't like sharing? Too busy. Too busy? Some people need help with the balance. They need what? Help with the balance. Help with the balance? The ballots. okay. <laughs> You're always sending me those emails, Mac. Yeah. Okay, other, yeah, others? Okay, well, now, I, I anticipated, I think, most of these. So I made a list, and I want to talk about why we don't like groups, and I think most of these things were in what I anticipated, but you can see. Why we don't like groups. Number one, they're dead. I mean, sometimes they just feel dead, right? Like you're sitting there and, oh, this is so dead. Number two, they're stiff and boring. Number three, they're a, a whole lot of work. Now, I'm going to go on from here, but, but I would say I think most people would agree with that assessment, which means most people are not picturing the kind of groups that Jesus is picturing. In verse 39, Jesus commands his apostles to recline the people. That's a verb, anaclino. Uh, the related noun is klesia. In Luke, the word translated group is klesia, which can literally be translated recliner. Ecclesia was a place that people reclined together in order to like eat a, a, a banquet. Recline. So Jesus isn't thinking work, but rest. He commands them to recline all groups by groups. And the word for group is symposia. Which literally, if you look this up, it literally means a drinking party, which rarely implies stiff and boring, which reminds us of Toby Keith in last week's message, I love this bar, which also reminds us of Pentecost and all those people looking at this, stuff. those guys are drunk. Jesus commands the apostles to recline all symposia by symposia, all groups by groups, on the green grass. Then, then Mark writes this, they reclined prosia by prosia. Now, prosia is also translated group, but it literally refers to uh, like a vegetable patch, a group of vegetables growing together in a garden, not dead, but alive. The disciples are commanded to do something inorganic. You all get in groups. You've got sign-ups and blah, 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 blah. Get, get in groups. They're commanded to do something inorganic in order that something organic might happen in order that good things could run wild. Well, Jesus is picturing something a long way from dead, stiff, and boring. He's picturing something alive, lubricated with grace, and moving in peace and harmony. I mean, dang, I kind of would like to be a part of that kind of a group. And you're kind of wondering, what were they serving in those groups? I mean, what were they eating? What, what were they drinking in a group like that? Well, anyway, why don't we like 
groups. How about number four? Someone said it over here. You can get hurt in a group. I mean, what if you end up in a group with Dr. Evil? Not just weird, but evil. You can really get hurt in a group. In fact, you can be betrayed in a group. You have to get close to someone to be betrayed by someone. You can be betrayed to the crowd and delivered up for crucifixion. Number five, we don't like to be judged, right? In other words, in a group, you think to yourself, I don't want to conform to this group's judgments. And I don't want to conform to your standards and your judgments. We're not all the same. We don't like to be judged. Number six, we don't like to judge. In other words, you think to yourself, I don't want to hear your problems because <laughs> I don't know how to judge them. And I don't know how to fix them. Number seven, we don't get anything out of it. Number eight, we don't have anything to give to it. In other words, we think to ourselves, look, look, all I've got is like five barley loaves and two fish. All I have is poverty, <laughs> this poverty of spirit, this mourning, this meekness, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, when all you have is nothing, give your nothing. Give your poverty. My pastor friend Tim wrote in his suicide note, it is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. That jumped off the page at me when I read it because it is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. I'm really not ashamed of your wretched weakness. I'm ashamed of my own wretched weakness. I got a, a lot, I've been working on this a long time. Ashamed of my own wretched weakness. Yet St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I am weak, then I am strong. So when I give my nothing, when I give my weakness, somehow I give God's strength. Have you ever been in a group where people constantly share their strength? You have. You've been to junior high, right? I mean, you've been to a lot of church meetings, too, where people constantly share their strength, and it's exhausting. It's stiff as hell and, and dead. It's a group of people trying to impress each other. But have you ever been to a group where people share their weaknesses? Not as manipulation. You know, manipulation is using your weakness in order to gain power over others. But have you ever been in a group where people just say, I'm broken? A group where people just confess. Now, Jesus warns us not to cast our pearls before swine. You see, swine don't know that pearls are treasure. And there are people that won't value your confession. The crowd probably won't value your confession. You know, a pearl is like a piece of dirt that gets encased in, in a jewel. Much like our sins are covered with the grace of God. Well, have you ever been in a group where people believe in the grace of God and someone just confesses, I'm broken? 
I was a youth pastor for years and years and years, and that meant that I led a lot of groups for junior highers, high schoolers, college kids. Tenth grade boys were just about the absolute worst. I mean, getting them to talk was like trying to squeeze water out of a stone. Until one night, out of the blue, the quiet kid, Brian Millar, I remember it was, the group was just going nowhere, and Brian said, hey, do you guys ever think about killing yourself? Because I do. He gave his poverty to Jesus in us. And my 10th grade small group Bible study turned into a banquet. And Brian Millar's dirt turned into a pearl as I watched those 10th grade boys cover it in God's grace. The disciples gave the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. He blessed them and broke them and then commanded the disciples to feed each other with that. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, saying, this is my body. He took the cup, saying, this is my blood. In the morning, he hung on a tree, and into his body of flesh, he absorbed the sins of the world. He absorbed Brian Millar's self-hatred. He absorbed Tim Brewer's self-hatred. He absorbed your self-hatred and my self-hatred, and then his body was broken. And his life spilled out. Blood spilled out. Grace spilled out. God's grace is what they ate and drank in those groups on the green grass on the mountain that day long ago. Now, this is a deep and profound mystery that we could explore the rest of our lives and never fully grasp. But when you give your poverty in Jesus' name, you give someone else the privilege of giving the grace of God in Jesus' name. When you boast of your weaknesses, you invite God's strength. You somehow give Jesus. Jesus took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body. Scripture goes on to testify that we are his body. Paul writes, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're his body. Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body. You know, I learned all about Jesus from my slate of Christian rock stars, but I came to know Jesus through just a handful of people. People to whom I was allowed to get close enough to watch them be broken and experience what would then happen when they began to bleed. And I began to bleed. Bleed blood that turned into wine. And that's grace. It really didn't matter whether they were broken by someone else's sin, my sin, their own sin, or just the circumstances of this fallen world. What mattered was that their pride, their self-sufficiency, which, by the way, is the same as their self-hatred, uh, that their earthen, what mattered is that their earthen vessel was broken. I'm thinking of people in particular like my dad, my bride. My friend Andrew Trawick. I watched my father be broken, and he bled Jesus. I've watched my bride be broken, sometimes by me, 
and she bled Jesus. Then I began to bleed Jesus. Andrew and I, several years ago, were broken together and, and bled together. 22 years ago, when Susan and I moved back from California to Colorado, I said to my wife, honey, I'm going to be the senior pastor of this church, and, and that means that I'm going to become a thing, maybe even a rock star. No, I didn't say the rock star part, but I could have. I could have said that. What I said was, I'm going to become a thing. Well-intentioned people will think they know me and they know you when they only know about me and know about you. But we need to be known, and we need to know. So if we're going to survive, we better get in a group. So we called old friends from high school for whom I was not the pastor and said, um, can we just get together and pray and stuff, you know, every, every now and then? And we've met now with those people, the Rinkies, the Parsons, and the Trawicks for 22 years. There's Alan and Jennifer. Alan and I knew each other when we were five, I think. I spent the night at your house, right, Alan? We've met weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, sometimes not at all. We've had Bible studies, book studies, no studies, sometimes sung worship songs, often prayed. Lately, we just have dinner together once, once a month. Seven years ago, everyone's life seemed to fall apart, and we didn't meet for a while. But Andrew would drive down here usually every week, and uh, we'd just go for a walk. Seven years ago, my earthen vessel, my ego, my accomplishments, my success, I mean, it all just got shattered. And seven years ago, Andrew's ego's accomplishments and success seemed to all get shattered. We'd known each other for 37 years. Now, I mean, he used to live at my house, and we spent a lot of time trying to impress each other, but for the last seven years or so, every week, we'd just go for a walk. I don't know how to judge and fix Andrew's brokenness. And he does not know how to judge and fix my brokenness. And yet I welcome everything that he has to say, for it's all laced with grace. And grace seems to help. But we just go for a walk and share our hearts, and through the cracks in Andrew's broken vessel, every now and then, it's like I touch something eternal. And it helps me just to know it's there. Or should I say just to know that he's there. Jesus is there. Not knowledge about Jesus, but Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And we can see it. See him when they're broken. What I'm saying is that the person sitting next to you is a sacrament. You won't find Jesus in your spiritual rock stars, but you can meet him in the broken person next to you. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And now listen closely because you really need to hear this, understand this. There really is treasure, but there is also really an earthen vessel. There's treasure but it's buried in a field. So you need to expect a lot of dirt, and you need to expect a lot of crap. You may spend your whole life digging in the field or waiting for the vessel to crack, but you see, it's far more 
exciting and thrilling to find treasure buried in a field than to get it any other way. I mean, I know Andrew Trawick's dirt. And that makes it all the more thrilling when I find Jesus hiding there. I mean, it's like finding the king of glory in a barn. Or a, a precious, priceless baby lying in a manger. You really can't know a rock star because a rock star is an idol of your own creation, but you can know a baby. And only God can create a baby. So, are you looking for Jesus? I think we're all looking for Jesus. There's this legend that God once asked wisdom for advice. He said, wisdom, I want to play a game of hide-and-seek with humankind. And so I asked my angels where they thought I should hide. And some said, well, you should hide in the depths of the ocean. And others said, you should hide on the top of the highest mountain. And others said, you should hide on the dark side of the moon or the deep recesses of space. And God said to wisdom, where do you think I should hide? And wisdom said, Hide in the human heart, for that's the last place they'll think to look. And Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And in the beginning, God took clay, vessels of clay, and breathed his spirit into those earthen vessels, and man became a living being, a living soul. It's clear that someone who asks for the Holy Spirit receives the Holy Spirit, but in some way, the Spirit of Jesus must be hiding in every human heart. For the Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and we come to find it when they're broken. The treasure is Jesus, and Jesus is God given to us. He is grace. You can learn about it through me. I learned more about it through the brokenness of people like Brennan Manning and Ron Davis and Tony Campolo and Paul of Tarsus. You can learn about it through me, but I think you can only know it, that is, know him in a few, with whom you have the time and the energy to break bread together. So Jesus broke the bread gave it to his small group, and then they were broken and gave it to others. Grace. I wish we had time to explain this uh, more fully, but when you give your poverty in Jesus' name, you get grace in Jesus' name. You, you actually get Jesus. And then you won't need to judge, the grace of God will judge. In other words, the blood of the lamb will judge and that blood becomes wine. God's grace will judge and God's grace will fix people. And you will be judged by grace. Laws and human energy make everyone the same, but grace makes unique individuals and then unites those unique individuals into a body bound together by blood. And it's true that you may get hurt. If you give your heart, your heart can be broken. But if you hold on to your heart, your spirit forever remains alone. C.S. Lewis wrote this, the only place safe from the danger of love is hell. So you can get hurt. You can even get crucified. But grace 
will raise you from the dead. Grace is even strong enough for Dr. Evil. Do you remember that Jesus had a small group? And in his small group, there was a guy named Judas. Jesus picked Judas. Jesus loved Judas. And there is every indication that although Judas descended into hell, we have not heard the last of Judas. For Jesus descended into hell after him and led a host of, of, of captives free. You know, Jesus took bread, broke it, and said to his entire small group, I mentioned this last week because I think this is amazing. He said this to his entire small group, including Judas, this is my body, which is for you. Eat it. Drink it. In John's account, Jesus commands disciples to pick up all the broken pieces that none would be lost. Jesus seeks and saves the lost, the perished. In Mark 6, Jesus is in Israel and the disciples pick up 12 kafinas. They were these personal little baskets that the Jews would carry, one for each disciple, one for each tribe, 12 kafinas of lost pieces. Pieces. Um, Two chapters later in 8, go check this out, Jesus is in the Decapolis. Now that's Gentile territory, and Jesus does the same thing. But the disciples pick up seven spurious. That's like these huge hampers, seven spurious of, of, of broken leftover pieces. Twelve is the number of Israel. Seven is the number of all creation. Jesus plans to feed all people through himself. What I'm saying is Jesus loves everyone in your group. So you can love everyone in your group because you're backed up by Jesus. So anyway, how does Jesus feed the world? He is the word of God. He is the bread of life. He offers his body to be broken and his life to be poured out. And then he asks us to sit down in groups and feed each other. So each weekend we preach the word, break the bread, pour the wine, and we try to form groups. At the sanctuary, we have two kinds of groups. The first kind we call connect gatherings, and that's a group that, that really entails no commitment. They're just, they get together. This is how you begin to get connected, and they center around some kind of activity from gardening to Bible study to whatever. And we have a second kind of group, life groups, which do involve a commitment to share God's life and your life. Usually that means um, a commitment to spend some sort of, spend time together in some kind of study, time together sharing and sharing and prayer, and third, Thirdly, time together goofing off because they have to be fun. They don't have a leader but a facilitator because the idea is that we serve each other, we feed each other. And it's not to be a chore or a bore or a class. It's to be like ecclesia, a place to recline, or a symposia, a party, or, or a bar, or a parsia, a garden where things grow. It's how a crowd turns into a body. And that's peace and joy and life, Jesus' life. I mean, it's like we actually are his body being knit together by grace. So if you're not already in a group, Kimberly and the community life team, they can help you, help you get in a group. In January, we're having this weekend event that I'm really excited about. Bob Hudson and Jolene Miller from our church that lead cross-ministry groups are going to lead a deal here at the church to help jumpstart our groups. But I hope that somewhere in your life, 
Okay, it doesn't have to be here because we're not like the boss of all groups or something. Um, and by the way, your family is a group. But I hope that somewhere in your life you sit down in a group and grace is what's for dinner. I read about a man who asked the Lord about heaven and hell. The, the Lord, and the Lord said to the man, he said, well, come, I'll show you hell. And he took them to a room. They entered a room where this group of people sat around this huge pot of stew. I mean, maybe you've heard this. They, they look, he looked in the room, and the people just looked famished. They looked like they were suffering. They were desperate. They were starving. Each one of them had a, a spoon with which they could reach to the pot, and yet the spoon was longer than their arms, so they couldn't feed themselves. The suffering was immense and terrible. Come now, I'll show you heaven, said the Lord. And he took him to another room where he saw just the same thing, except everyone looked nourished and, and whole and together. I mean, there was the group, there was the food, and there were the spoons. And the man turned to the Lord and said, I don't understand. Why is it such suffering in one room and such abundance in the other? And the Lord said, it's simple. This is heaven. And in this room, they've learned to feed each other. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat in a room with this small group, and he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, we're going to eat the word of the Lord. Um, Jesus is God's word, and we're going to feed each other, okay? So when you come forward, um, I want you to tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the white cup. That's juice, all right? And then turn around and just place it in the mouth of the person behind you. If uh, you need gluten-free, that's over here, but you can do the same thing at the gluten-free station, okay? And now, if you're saying, well, I'd kind of like a symposia, well, then you can tap the person in front of you and say, I'd like wine, please, and then they can dip it in the dark club and turn around and, and feed you, all right? Um, so that means the first person that comes forward, I'll feed, and the last person that comes forward, then you need to feed, feed us, feed the communion servers, and if you have it twice and all the mix-up, that's great, because it's a banquet, okay? Um, and then let's worship. And that's a picture of what God is calling us to be a group of people that feed each other with his grace. In Jesus' name, let's believe the gospel and live. Amen. I didn't know they were going to end with that song, but I think it's appropriate, and maybe God wants me to mention it, because the next thing that happens after they feed the 5,000 is Jesus makes them get in the boat and they sail out onto that sea that you remember from two weeks ago is a picture of hell, and Peter walks on the water. You know, a church is like that boat, but it's not held together with nails and glue. It's held together with the grace of God. And I think God has called us to construct a boat. And the boat is held together with God's grace and by our love for each other. And I think the boat's supposed to sail somewhere. And we're supposed to share the grace of God with the world. On the other side of the sea is the Decapolis, where Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves for the nations. Well, anyway, I think that's who we're supposed to be. So uh, this is just uh, my benediction to you. Um, 
may you sit down in groups and serve each other the grace of God. May we sit down as one big group and serve each other the grace of God. And then may we say, serve the, the, the world the, the grace of God, in Jesus' name. Now, before you go, let me just say, Kimberly uh, made these great uh, flyers on life groups in the back. If you'd like to be in a group, um, you can go to any one of the Connect gatherings that are back there. But if you'd like to form a group that's more permanent, this, uh, flyers are, this is a great way to do it. And you can talk to Kimberly. And I just want to say that it takes time, okay? So like I was telling you about my small group, we've been meeting for 22 years. People have come and gone or whatever, but we've been able to, to do that. But we want to help um, foster those kind of groups. So if you're interested in that, grab one of these brochures and you can get your information to Kimberly. And in January, um, we'll especially be pulling a lot of those together and kind of supercharging them. So right now, it's important that you just have a great day, wash the Broncos, um, hang out a bit if you'd like. If you'd like prayer, members of our prayer team are down front here. Vance is on this side. Kathleen's over on this side. They'd love to pray with you. If you're new and you'd like information just about our church, we have an information center right back here in the back of the room. And Lynn is sitting back there, and she would love to talk with you, answer any, any questions at all. She'll answer them, okay? So uh, have a great day, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.